carbon paper tape powered by the Ram 1500 Sport, built exclusively for Canadians. Rory, lots to talk about today. Big question we're going to try and answer. Are the Philadelphia Flyers a Stanley Cup contender? Mm-hmm. We're not really going to answer that. Charlie O'Connor's going to answer that for us, or at the very least, tell us what's going on in Philly with this resurgent club. Charlie works for The Athletic. He's a co-host of the Broad Street Hockey Podcast, so he knows a ton about the Flyers, and we're going to get to the bottom of how this has become one of the hottest teams in Mm -hmm. hockey. We're going to talk about some stuff that came out of the GM meetings in Florida, and I think we'll start there. It's one of those things that doesn't seem like the most exciting topic, but when you start thinking about the ramifications of it, a salary cap spiking Mm -hmm. could be very interesting for the summer shuffle in terms of who could be going where and free agency, trades, all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, best case scenario for us is that it goes to the max and it's $88 million. Which would be a huge jump. That would be the biggest single season jump in the Caps history. Yeah. So, I mean, it would be unprecedented in terms of what we could see. But that's probably unlikely because that would mean escrow is going to be high for the players. You know, a lot of where this ends up is going to have to do with what the players do with their escalator and how the even CBA negotiations potentially go here. So um, it's, it's also worth noting that the NHL last year projected around this time that the cap would be $83 million for this year. It's 81.5. So there's still a chance it comes in lower, but we can hope that even if it goes up to $84 million next year, and and that's a two and a half million dollar bump, it's going to open up a lot of possibilities trade wise, free agent wise in the summer and, and could be, could cause a lot of news and movement that we can talk about. Well, there would be some teams that would be doing absolute backflips to get an extra two to say nothing of like, four million dollars that they didn't necessarily anticipate it's a good player yeah it's a good player i mean it starts off we're in toronto it starts off with the toronto maple leafs for me because injuries have made it clear that even before the injuries but injuries have made it a struggle for that team to piece together a six-man blue line at a really important time of year but even when morgan riley jake muzz and tyson berry they're all healthy it's a bit of an issue especially with the right shot it's and it has been for a long period of time but if you get an extra couple of million dollars to work with now you open up the possibility maybe you can get into the free agent market but i think more likely is that you have more room to maneuver to make a trade. It's less important to have the money in matching the money that's going out. You can take on a little bit more. And the other important thing to note here for the Maple Leafs is all those LTIR contracts are gone. David Clarkson, Nathan Horton, gone. So you don't have to deal with those anymore. The only retained salary that would still be on the books is Phil Castle's $1.2 million for another two years beyond this. But there's no more of that dead cap that they have to concern themselves with. So it's all, you know, lack of a better term, free money that they have there to maneuver with. So just a higher cap than expected means they these things are attainable now. They can absolutely go out and and try and get a top four right shot blue liner to really bring back a solid team. I imagine the Tyson Berry experiment is done, so you're not worrying about that contract. Jake Muzzin is signed, so that's the biggest thing, and that's out of the way. you got Travis Dermott that you've got to resign. I don't think that's going to be overly costly. Kyle Clifford, I think they would probably like to bring back, and again, that's not going to cost a ton for them to do. So I think you're probably looking at a situation where they trade one of those forwards 
Kapanen, Janssen, those types, not a bigger name, but those types of guys just to try and bring them some, in some defensive help. And there's going to be all sorts of teams that could be in that in the offseason that wouldn't be available to make those trades at the deadline. And we were talking before we got rolling how the last time the cap went up even uh, a little – yeah, we saw some serious movement. Yeah, two years ago, the cap jumped four million dollars, and in that summer, you saw Ryan O'Reilly trade. You saw the Dougie Hamilton blockbuster between Carolina and Calgary. Towards the end of the offseason in September, you had the Eric Carlson trade, Max Pacioretty trade. So that you know, a lot of big movement can yeah. happen when when the cap jumps by that number. So we're looking at that possibility, and then you look at not just the cap jumping and saying, oh, well, that opens up possibilities. But look at how many teams seem to potentially be in business to make those kind of moves. Calgary, again, if they either miss the playoffs or don't make it out of the first round again, a lot of buzz that they could shake up their core. You know, Johnny Gaudreau's name, Sean Monahan's name certainly are the ones that are leading that charge. Nashville, if they miss the playoffs... I mean, what could happen there? Yeah. I mean, Pecorini's in his last legs. It seems like he's he's been losing out on the starter's job to Usaros there. Uh, Minnesota, another team, although they have been playing well and answering after the Jason Zucker trade, Matt Dumba, Jonas Brodeen, those are the big names. And again, those are always more likely to happen in the summer. And, and with more cap room, it's even more likely. Even the Florida Panthers don't want to go in too much again <laughs> on them this year, but... You know, Mike Hoffman and Evgeny Dadnov are huge UFAs for them this summer. Uh, they traded away Vincent Trocek, which seemed to start them down the path of potentially making big, big changes. And they are fading from that playoff picture pretty rapidly. The main piece that they got back for Trocek, Eric Halla, also a UFA. So when you hear the buzz that they could make some big changes, the first thing you think of is, does that mean... Alexander Barkov. I can't imagine it does after you pay Bobrovsky $10 million, you trade your second centerman. <laughs> I can't imagine Barkov is on the table, but but you never really can know with this team. You get into like Aaron Ekblad. Again, I find that unlikely, but Michael Matheson, any of those defensemen really could potentially be out there. It's just how many, when you're talking about shaking up that core, not a lot of names beyond Huberto and Barkov no. that really are that core. No, that's point, right. Right? So you're just like... They are such a wild card and unpredictable. And also all these teams together, you think about it and you just see a lot of big names, a lot of teams that could be motivated to make those kinds of changes. And if the cap rises and everybody's got that wiggle room, I mean, we could be in line for a summer with some huge blockbusters. So one team that has cap room and that has fans that are certainly screaming for changes is the Montreal Canadiens. Mark Bergevin spoke to our own Elliot Friedman. Yeah. At the GM meetings, Elliot had a, you know quite an extensive conversation with him, even mentioned the fact that Elliot had heard rumors out there that maybe Mark Bergevin had even contemplated yeah. stepping down, given the madness yeah. uh, swirling around him. Maybe the job was just eating him from the inside out. He said, though there were many sleepless nights and tough nights, he loves his job and and wants to forge ahead and will forge ahead. It certainly seems like for at least another year, same for Claude Julian. Uh, Mark Bergevin has endorsed his coach. He will be back to start next season anyway. This will be the third year the Canadians missed the playoffs on the road, the fourth season in five years. 
So not surprisingly, a lot of people are looking at Bergevin and Julian, but for the purpose of this conversation, Mark Bergevin asking what his future with the club will be. And I think the biggest knock right now is there are some people who feel like he doesn't have a coherent plan. I know yeah. a number of the writers, including our own Eric Engels, after Bergevin spoke at trade deadline, they kind of felt like this guy maybe was contradicting himself in some yeah. of the things he was saying. What are your takeaways from hearing what Bergevin had to say to Elliot in the 31 Thoughts blog. You can, of course, read on sportsnet.ca. Well, I actually kind of agree with him that it wasn't really a coaching problem this year. I mean, this is a team that dealt with some injuries, but everybody deals with injuries, but they're still getting the pieces coming together. The The young players are still kind of arriving and and growing as NHL players. So, you know, it's a tough one because it's not just a Canadian market thing where if you miss the playoffs for four times in five years as a GM, your job is going to be in question. No doubt about that. And there were times when Bergevin, even talking to Elliot, where, you know, he says he's bringing back Claude because it wasn't a coach problem, but the coach needs to be better. And there is a little bit of contradiction in some of the stuff that he says. But I think the overall takeaway for me is I very much see where he's coming from. Like, you can see the terrific asset management that he's done, like the Petrie and Deneau pickups were just incredible. The Kovalchuk turnaround, Scandella, I mean... You can keep going. Suzuki, Suzuki and Tatar for Pacioretty. That trade worked out both ways. Domi for Galchenyuk. Absolutely. So, I mean, how can you hold any of that against this guy? From where he was with the assets he had before any of those moves to what he turned them into, there's not many GMs who are going to be able to do that. So he's got a great track record with that. He's We've talked about it before. He's He's kind of stabilized and rebuilt the center depth within the organization, which is extremely hard to do. And, and no, they don't have the superstar stud guy, but that's just extremely hard to do outside of really bottoming out and hoping your draft year has a center at the top of it. I'll keep saying it. And, you know, longtime listeners know I've been the tanker proponent, but the Detroit Red Wings have a better than 80% chance of not getting Alex Lafreniere. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's luck. It's a luck at that point. I think the way you got to look at it is what kind of progress are you making in terms of building that organization out? And and I just see a lot of positivity around Bergevin. And I at the same time, I completely understand the frustration from a fan base that sees a team that's not spending to the cap, not making it to the playoffs, having excuses made for it, it seems, every year. And, and wanting change either from the GM to make a, a big move to infuse some, some difference or just to try a new GM. But I just think you look at what he's done and I don't know how you could bring in a new GM and expect him to do a better job. I just think it's natural that this team is going to grow into itself a little bit better. And you're going to feel the pressure as long as Shea Weber and Carey Price are there that you've got to win, you've got to win, you've got to win because these guys at some point... And you could even argue maybe it's already started with Carey Price. They're going to start to have that age-related decline. When that happens with Price, you're going to be in a li- even more trouble. You just can't force things. Because when you force things, you're getting your organization into even more problems. And I just think Bergevin has done the thing a GM needs to do, which is always taking the long-term view while at the same time trying to improve right here, right now, there's not always an easy fix there. The GM's job is to kind of stabilize things and show progress. And just in terms of the way he's built up player personnel, I think he's done a very good job in that regard. And it's unfair to 
you know, expect a new GM to come in and really be the one that's going to take this? Like, what are you really going to do realistically? Yeah, there's a weird dynamic to Mark Bergevin's tenure in that in the first half, he, he came on in 2012. They had success in that they were making the playoffs, but it's really not his team at that point, right? Yep, like, absolutely. you inherit that team. It has Carey Price in the dead of his prime, Max Pacioretty, P.K. Subban, and they make the playoffs, they even make a little noise. But it's a flawed team that has a pretty hard ceiling on it in terms of where it's going. If there was a time to, to fire Mark Bergevin, it was in 2017 when he's out there signing Carl Alsner. And you're looking at him sure. going, this is a reactionary move. He's completely out of touch with where the league is. You know, that was the same summer that Radulov left, Markov left. Mm -hmm. It looked like they were in complete disarray, and he was just saying, oh, we'll take Carl Alsner. I think you absolutely could have justified firing him at that point because it seemed like the Canadians put too much value on grit and character in a league that was changing fast. Since that point, you are hard-pressed to find a miss on yeah. his list of transactions. And since they, as a group, collectively seem to take a step back and say, teams are loath to come out and say, aside from a letter here and there, that we're going to try and take a step back to take two forward. And I think especially in Canada, especially in Montreal, that's a tough message. So he ends up kind of talking in circles a little bit without saying, like, look, guys, we're yeah. going to miss the playoffs, but it's kind of not the end of the world because I can't really, if I come out and say it's not the end of the world, then people are going to lose their minds. But if you just look at everything they've done in terms of building the prospect base and getting guys who are now starting to come through in the trades he's made, yeah, I mean, for a, a quote-unquote soft retool, it, it probably couldn't be going better. So yeah. if you said to me, they're going to ax Mark Bergevin, what are the odds the next guy's going to be making smarter moves at this point? I would say yeah. good luck. Yeah, I mean, how can you do better is, is the bottom line. I think you make a great point because... A GM should be evaluated by how he's building the organization, but a fan base kind of understandably wants to, will look at that GM through the lens of what are your points in the standings? And those two things don't always align. No. But to me, when you would want to fire a GM is when it looks like he's losing handle of the situation. And in 2017, to your point, it did look like he was losing control there. I don't think he's losing control right now. I see a GM that is very much in control by not making panic moves and sitting back and, and not dealing Thomas Tatar just to do it at the trade. Or say, we're going to spend to the cap so I can say we spend all our money. Exactly. You know, it's going to be very difficult in that organization with Tampa, Boston, and Toronto ahead of you. None of those teams are going anywhere. To take that next step and get into that top three, you're kind of hoping for a wild card at this point. So you just got to be patient and hope that you're and count on the work that you're doing paying off at some point. And I look at it and I see it's hard to really bet on that it will happen, but you are seeing the right kind of progress that I think you want your GM to be making in, in, in building your organization up. All right. Lots more to come here on Tape to Tape, including Charlie O'Connor on the Philadelphia Flyers. Hey, welcome back to Tape to Tape. You're listening to this podcast. I think there's a pretty good chance you're into fantasy hockey. That is the case. Don't forget to sign up for the Sportsnet Fantasy Pool presented by Ram at sportsnet.ca forward slash Ram. Cash prizes totaling $50,000 up for grabs. And the grand prize, a 2020 Ram 1500 Sport. 
if you breakout candidates around the league are the breakout, I guess candidates for breakout player of the year would be a better way to phrase that. Mm. We're going to talk to Charlie about Travis Konechny, who's pretty much become a point per game player for the Flyers. I've been very happy to have Kevin Fiala on my fantasy yeah. team to say nothing of, of Kaylor Yamamoto mm-hmm. uh, on the Oilers uh, and on my fantasy team. But if there's kind of a like team breakout, yeah. I guess it might be the New York Rangers. I mean, you're looking at D'Angelo on defense uh, and not necessarily break out, but leap forward or go to another level. Mika Zibanejad, yep. I mean, he, he was 74 points last year, but he's basically playing at a 100-point pace this year. Igor Shesterkin in goal. He we're going to get... Good. He looks real good, and yeah. we're going to make sure we get his name bang on the money before yeah. much longer. Uh, yeah. We're all going to have to make sure we really, really, really nail it because yeah. he looks like he's going to be around for a while. I get the sense if the Rangers do hang around in this playoff race for another three weeks, we may have to devote more time to them yeah. and to Artemi Panarin's potential Hart Trophy case. But yeah. there's a lot to look at and get excited about on yeah, this team. I mean, you're just even scratching the server. Like Ryan Strome yes, absolutely. is going to approach that 70-point pace. Yeah, They got him for nothing, right? They I really mean, did. He was... He was kind of lost it seemed like and Pavel Buchnevich is another guy that's had a, a on track to have a career year Georgiev has been a nice backup they've been doing this without Henrik Lundqvist basically who is the third goalie now so you know you think back it was just over two years ago I guess when they sent out that letter to their fans basically saying oh we're going into a rebuild so get ready for us to trade away a bunch of players and usually when that happens you, know, you never really know what's going to happen next like that could lead to an onset of years of sure. terrible play like you're you're tanking you never know how smoothly you're going to be able to transition out of that and everything being able to go out and get a ufa like artemi panarin not every team can attract a player like that so that in itself is a huge boost but it's not just that i mean all these players that we've mentioned have come here whether whether they were drafted by the organization and have been developed or they were picked up and have just kind of fit in here and 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 done tremendously well it is all falling into place so quickly. And, and you know, their, their head coach deserves a lot of credit. I think the GM has done uh, just a, a phenomenal, as good of a job as you could hope a GM does. And it's, it's, it's been less of a rebuild and more of a retool on the fly that has worked to absolute perfection. And even if they don't get in the playoffs this year, no one basically was expecting them to get into the playoffs this year. No. So if you don't reach it, who cares, whatever. You'll return back next year with a... Fresh year of Igor Shishchirkin, a fresh year of of everybody entering, knowing exactly what they've got and what they don't, and and again an off season that could bring some potential additions as well. So there's a lot to get excited about here with the New York Rangers. Again, this is another team that's got a lot to contend with in that division for sure. But when you have as much youth as the Rangers do, not not to mention we haven't even said yet that they re-signed Chris Kreider, who was the biggest rental trade chip on the market, potentially, and and they kept him. So they essentially made the biggest rental, not even rental, they made the biggest addition at the deadline by keeping him. So that is a good sign that they're they're believing in this team, and and they're past the point of just trying to get picks and prospects, and now they've got a sight on trying to push this thing forward and and win with this team. And what does Capo Caco look like in year two? We will see. Yeah, I mean, he's been, uh, both of those guys, Guys, him and Jack Hughes have been big disappointments for where they went in the draft. We've gotten used to those kinds of Stepping players. Stepping in and... 
by no means does it mean that either of them are off off yeah. track or to worry about them. I would expect both of them uh, to come back. I mean, Kako was great last year uh, in Europe against men. So I just think it's it's not always going to be a natural transition for everybody. He's a guy I still love, and I think he's going to break out. You know, all the players that we've said who have broken out for the Rangers this year, keep an eye on Kako because he's probably the next one that's going to follow next year. And if you add that to what you're seeing this year, boy, oh boy, oh boy, there's a lot of weapons on that on that Rangers team. So speaking of breakout, on Jan 11th, the Flyers were ninth in the conference, 23-16-6. and six. Since then, 16-4-1. They're tied with Colorado for the best points percentage in the league at 7-8-6. That's why we got to talk to Charlie O'Connor to find out what is going on with this Flyers team. Stick around for that on Tape to Tape. Looking the puck in is Braun. Looking to get that to Giroux. It finds D'Angelo instead. Oracek swings to the puck, gets it to Couturier. To Giroux for the shot. He scores! You know, our boys came to play, I think, uh, showed a lot about uh, the will and, and the character of, of uh, this group here. Obviously, we haven't uh, accomplished anything yet, but uh, tonight was a, a big game, a big game for both teams. Both teams were ready, worked out well for us. Hey, time now for our overtime segment brought to you by Subway. No joke, Subway now delivers. Joining us for overtime this week... He covers the Philadelphia Flyers for The Athletic, and he is a co-host of the BSH radio podcast. It's Charlie O'Connor. Charlie, how are you doing? Doing good, doing good. It's been a, a fun ride the last few weeks covering this team, so it's, can't complain. I imagine it has been, so let's just jump right into it. If you can narrow it down to a couple things, what has clicked for this team to make the Flyers look like a real contender in the East? A couple things. You know, Number one, and I think... Most people who are following this team kind of had this assumption going into the year that the Flyers would be a better team in the second half than the first half just because they would have been more used to playing under a late video. And I think the team, you know, number one, they've, they've gotten more used to the system, but they've really bought in. You know, Vigneault's teams historically have done really well in the first year of his tenure in Montreal and Vancouver and New York. And it seems like it's happening again. You know, he's really got his finger on the pulse of this team. Uh, he's preached accountability. Everyone's bought in. The breakouts are better. The neutral zone four checks tighter. And, and the team just is now at the point where they're, they're rolling four lines. They're rolling three defensive pairs. Carter Hart, since he's come back from injury, has been really good. They fixed the power play. The penalty kill after years of being mediocre to bad is now actually a strength. So it's funny. Over the last three, four weeks, this, this team honestly looks like a, a team that doesn't have many obvious holes. You know, they might not have the, the amount of high-end talent that a team like the, like the Lightning might have, but in terms of obvious holes, I'm not sure they really have one right now, and that's a big reason why they've been rolling through the league. What are the main uh, changes, I guess, that Alain Vigneault has, has made to that team, you know, structure-wise, player usage, whatever, that has had the biggest impact in, in kind of getting them back on track? Yeah, there are a couple things that he's done tactically. Uh, you know, one thing he definitely did is he turned them into a much tighter checking team, as I mentioned, in the middle of the ice. In the second half of last year, they ran a, a 1-3-1 uh, under Scott Gordon. He turned that into a pretty aggressive Vino day. He turned it into a pretty aggressive 1-2-2. 
And I've talked to a lot of the players, and they've said they've really benefited from the fact that they're not standing still as much in the neutral zone. They're attacking. They're attacking the puck. They're attacking the puck carrier. They're, they're jumping in lanes. And it's making it really hard for opposing teams to get through the middle of the ice against them. In addition, they've really they've really adapted an identity as a, a heavy forechecking team. You know, this is a team that at the start of the game, they're going to dump the puck in a lot. And then they're going to come in on the forecheck and they're going to hit the defenseman. They're going to hit them every time. And what they believe and what I think has played out over the, over the course of the year is that they think that style over the course of a game is going to wear down other teams, especially because the Flyers are rolling, as I said, four lines, three defensive pairs. And, and what's happening is the Flyers are legitimately might be the best third period team in hockey. And I think a lot of that goes into the fact that they have the balance and they're going out in the first period, and they're making teams, you know, they're hurting teams a little bit. So combine the, the more aggressive uh, approach to the middle of the ice and then add in the fact that they're, they're coming in hard on the forecheck pretty much all game, and you've got a team that honestly is becoming really, really tough to play against. We want to zoom in on a few guys here, but let me start with Travis Konechny. This is a guy who had 24 goals each of the past few years. He's a 50-point player. He's already got 24 this year. He's essentially become a point-per-game player. What has allowed him to take such a leap here this year? Yeah, you know, there's, I, I guess there's a lot of different theories. He has obviously taken a major leap. Um, I think, number one, I think he's definitely improved his defensive game. You know, he's always had the offensive ability. He's always been a great skater. You know, over the last couple of years, he's turned into a really good shooter. But his his defensive game has lacked a bit. I don't think it was due to lack of effort. I think it was just due to him getting a handle on the NHL game. Well, this year, I don't think he's ever going to be a Selkie contender, but he's turned into a pretty good defensive forward. And he'll be the first one to tell you that because he's playing better defense, that's giving him more opportunities on offense. It's giving him more opportunities to have the puck. It's giving him more opportunities to attack. So I think that's been a big part of it. And number two, he's just he's just getting older. You know, he's he's reaching the point of his career where he should be getting a handle on the NHL. He's playing with great players. He's on the top power play unit now. It really just seems like it's a perfect storm. And I do think also that his style of play, because he is an aggressive, attacking type of player, it fits with the mentality and the tactics that Vigneault has, has changed and, and has, has pushed on this team. It's just it's kind of been a perfect storm for him. A lot of offensive production coming from the blue line there uh, in Philadelphia. And I, the, the one player I want to get in on here, I've always loved Ivan Provorov. In uh, two years ago, we had 17 goals. I thought last year he was just going to have an explosive year and it didn't come to fruition. But I mean, I mean he's getting back to that this year. Um, is that, I mean, what's behind that? Is, is that, is that Vigneault's effect? Is, is, is there something else uh, on or off the ice that has helped him get back on track? Like, what went wrong last year that is, is clicking again for him uh, this season? Yeah, last year really was just a mess all around for the organization. You know, obviously you had Ron Hexall getting fired. Then you had Dave Hexall getting fired. You had an organization that really completely turned itself over. And, you know, it, it's hard to say exactly what went wrong for Proveroff because Proveroff got off to a slow start even before all that turmoil. I, I, my theory has always been with Ivan Proveroff is that, you know, he's so good and he's, so, he's been so leaned upon at such a young age that he definitely at times can take a little bit too much onto himself. And I think what may have happened a little bit too often last year is that he was trying to do everything on every shift. And because of that, he wasn't doing much of anything right because he was trying to do five things at once. 
And one thing that I think has really helped him this year, in addition to the fact that maybe the offseason just gave him a little bit of a chance to breathe, is that he's getting to play with with veteran pair with veteran veteran partners. You know, he's mostly been paired with Matt Niskanen. And I, there were definitely questions going into the year, you know, how much does Matt Niskanen have left in the tank after his final year in Washington wasn't the best. But he's been a godsend for Provorov this year. I think Provorov has really benefited from not having to you – know, he's definitely the more talented player on the pair, without a doubt. But he's benefited from not necessarily having to carry the pair in terms of decision-making, in terms of communication. You know, he was he was playing with with younger guys, with less established guys. You know, he, he worked well with Shane Goss' pair for a bit uh, in 2017, 2018. He had his moments with Travis Sanheim last year. But he never really had the opportunity to play with, with a, an established, legitimate top four NHL defenseman who has seen it all and has been through it all. And this is the first time he's gotten the opportunity to do that with Matt Niskanen. And I think that's helped him a lot. It's just that stability. I think it's really helped him to kind of relax a little bit and just play to his strengths. And, and as you said, he's got a lot of them. So Provorov, Carter Hart, Travis Konechny, new generation Philadelphia Flyers. What about the old generation, Claude Giroux? And I guess we call Sean Couture old generation <laughs> Flyer at this yeah. point. Um, tell me a little bit about what they've done working together on the top line, I believe thrown together now, you know, a few weeks ago, and that really has has coincided with the rise. Yeah, I think there was just a feeling in Philadelphia, um, you know, in the front office, in the coaching staff, that you know, while Claude Giroux wasn't having a bad season before getting put back with Couturier and being moved back to wing because he was playing center before that, he wasn't having a bad season, but there was a feeling that if we're going to achieve our goals, we need to get Claude Giroux playing like Claude Giroux again. And as I said, I don't think he was having a bad year. You know, actually, his his underlying numbers, his advanced stats were very good this year, and that was despite the fact that he was playing center for a lot of the year, and he's been open that, well, you know, he spent most of the last decade as a center. At this stage of his career, he thinks he's better at wing. I don't think he was playing poorly, but you put him with a guy like Couturier, you put him back at wing, and now you're seeing the Claude Giroux from, from two years ago come back. And you know, I don't think he's he's as good as he was then. You know, when he had, in my opinion, what was a borderline MVP season. He's obviously not as good as he was when he was you know, 23, 24 years old. But I think he's still a point per game guy when he's put in the best situations. And for him, I think it's been a combination of being back with Katuri, being back on the wing, and the Flyers have have reconstituted the old power play structure in a lot of ways. For most of the year. They were using Claude Giroux on the right side of the power play rather than his left side of the power play where he had been one of the best power play forwards in hockey for the entirety of the 2010s. Well, the same game that they put him back with Couturier and put him back on Couturier's wing at 5-on-5, they moved Giroux back to the left side. And I think those two things have really unlocked him again. And now he's back rolling again offensively. The the two-way play was always there all year, but the offense is back. And as you said, the Flyers are benefiting big time from it. So we'll get you out of here on this. Washington and Pittsburgh have been the the teams, you know, from the beginning of the season to now that have been have been the leaders in that metro. And here come the Flyers charging on now. Um, you know, down the stretch when we get to the playoffs, they're going to have to play their way out of this metro. How do you see the Flyers matching up lineup wise against Pittsburgh and Washington? You know, one thing I'll say, and I, I wrote this column uh, after last night's game. I, I like how they match up with Washington. Um, not to say Washington isn't a great team. They are. But they went 3-0-1 against them in four games this year. And beyond that, they, they really showed a, 
a, a propensity to, to, to slow down that power play, which I think is, is essential to be in the Capitals in a playoff series. And having Sean Couturier, who I think is probably the favorite to win the Selkie this year, having Sean Couturier to be able to match up against Alex Ovechkin if they if they stack Ovechkin with Backstrom, you match him up against both of them. I think that's a luxury that few teams have, and that's something that the Capitals are going to have a hard time dealing with in the playoffs. Now, obviously, Capitals are still a great team. They still have amazing talent. You expect guys like Ovechkin and Backstrom and Carlson and everybody to, to have big series. But I think the Flyers have shown this season that, that they can they can get the better of them. And I don't think the talent gap is dramatic when you look at the rosters as a whole. Pittsburgh is interesting because you know that series, it, it's not that I don't think the Flyers could win it. I just think it would be a war. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those series where, you know, I think, the Flyers would be better off not having to face them in round one, because even if they come out of it, I don't know how much they would have left for round two. Um, and you could maybe say the same thing about Pittsburgh. But you know, the Flyers have had good games against them. They, they had a, they played them right before the bye week and right after the bye week. And they really shut them down in the game right before the bye week, and then they lost in overtime the game after the bye week, but in the third period they dominated. So they've had games where they played well against them. They also got absolutely destroyed by them at the end of October. So to me, Pittsburgh is a tougher matchup, and obviously you have to account for the fact that for whatever reason, Sidney Crosby just destroys the Flyers historically every time he plays them. It just I, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> Crosby somehow becomes even better when he plays the Flyers than he is against the rest of the league. So that will be a tough matchup, but I think the Flyers right now, anybody they face in the first round, as long as they continue to play the way they've been playing the past three, four weeks, they can beat anyone. But Pittsburgh, as I said, it would be a it would be a war. And even if they come out of it, I'm not sure if they would have a lot left afterwards. Well, with apologies to the Flyers fans, we are going to be hoping for yes. that matchup. Yes. <laughs> we're we're yes. hoping for Battle of Alberta uh, in the <laughs> West and a Keystone State matchup. We want nobody to have East. anything left yeah. left for round two. <laughs> yeah, that would be a fun one. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Charlie. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, that is Charlie O'Connor. He covers the Philadelphia Flyers for The Athletic. He's a co-host on the BSH Radio podcast. So, yes, Roy, we can dream of a uh, Pittsburgh-Philly matchup and a Calgary-Edmonton. Yeah. Still holding out hope for a Toronto-Boston. Oh, are you? Yeah, I am. <laughs> you want to see that? Why not? Who doesn't? I know. Okay, Leaf fans. Don't I actually see think that. I, if I was savvy enough technologically to actually make a Twitter poll, I would put that poll out to Leaf fans. I think we went through this last year. I just think people think the Leafs, as they're constructed as just a Tampa team, Boston? match up better against a Tampa huh. team that is kind of the similar in some ways, although their defense is better and bigger. But Boston also, it's just in Toronto fans' heads, heads, right? And nobody wants to have anything to do with them. But it's always a good series, Yeah, so please give, the, give me that. Yeah, we got some juicy matchups lingering out there, so we'll see how March shakes out. We will, of course, be covering the action all the way down the home stretch. Check out everything that's going on at sportsnet.ca. A lot of that stuff is coming from Rory. You can follow him on Twitter, at Rory Boylan. Myself, at Dixon on Sports. Check back next week for more Glass Rattling Hockey action on Tape to Tape.